Welcome back to the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Today, we continue the Carl Potts interview. So now we hit about 1987 in our timeline, and you said that the last year and a half or so, Undershooter used the phrase nightmare. So basically, it sounds like in the early 80s, there was a positive relationship, but then what, something flipped or changed toward the end? What happened there? Well, that's something that a lot of us that lived through that era have never been able to quite figure out what flipped the switch in Jim's mind because he used to brag about how he'd assembled the greatest roster of editors in the history of comics. And then at some point within a short amount of time, he went on with this attitude that we were all a bunch of clueless idiots that needed to be led by the hand by him, the master. Mm -hmm. And that caused just you know, all kinds of consternation. And a lot of it was aggravated by the two Secret Wars series. And then New Universe came along and he decided he was going to you know, be in charge of every aspect of that. And that turned into a huge nightmare. Um, I see. So was failure of the New Universe part of this change? I think so. But it really started with the Secret Wars thing because Jim decided this was like such a big, important thing that only one person could possibly edit it or Mm -hmm. write it and then essentially edit it. And that was him. Mm -hmm. And the policy that he'd had in place up until that time was that, as I mentioned earlier, that he encouraged editors to do freelance creative work. He felt it was good to keep them experienced on both sides of the desk. So they just, just not on their own titles. Right. So, or you couldn't write or do any of the art on a book that you edited, you also couldn't write or do the art on a book edited by someone you supervised. So like when I mm-hmm. became executive editor, I oversaw a third of the editorial department and I could not do creative work for any of those people because I was in charge of their reviews. I oversaw them. I had higher right. capacity over them. Except uh, the only person that was immune to Shooter's rule was Shooter. Mm-hmm. And so when he was writing as editor-in-chief, Ideally, what would have happened if he was, you know, following his own rules, the publisher, Mike Hobson, would have been the editor on those. But, you know, when one of the line editors had to edit Secret Wars or any of the New Universe titles um, like that, he could and he did often override them. He would totally blow deadlines left and right and cause total chaos in that regard. He could, you know, commandeer the whole bullpen to concentrate on getting out the late books that he'd caused to be late and therefore causing everybody else that was working on books that were on time to be penalized because their books suddenly became late because the bullpen was all tied up. And he would get into headbutting sessions occasionally with people and then they just fire him. He hired and fired Denny. He promoted and then fired Carlin. And there were other people that left before they got fired. They knew they were going to be fired. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just that, he went from someone who just would occasionally get into this weird, obstinate mood to someone who that was the standard operating procedure. And I, I do not understand exactly why or how that happened. There's been a few theories, but I, I've never really known why it was that. That's one question I've always wanted to, to find out is like how he changed his mind from having assembled the greatest editorial staff in comics history to how he assembled a bunch of clueless idiots. And if so, what does that say about the person that hired them and trained them? (laughs) You know, that kind of logic doesn't seem to have filtered down. When you say secret wars, you mean because there was such a corporate financial success, so that may have increased the ego? Is that kind of the mechanism? I think it was more along the lines that he insisted that every title in the Marvel Universe do some sort of crossover with secret wars. And so... And all of those crossovers had to be coordinated and approved by him. Okay. And since he was so hands-on with this thing, very few people ever pleased him with what they were doing. Oh, okay. And he, they would keep being revised, revised, revised. As a, an example, on the Hulk, since he was also so late, I mean, Secret Wars was very, very late because the writer started out very late and the writer was Shooter. And mm-hmm. the editor couldn't really threaten to fire Shooter because Shooter was his boss. Mm-hmm. It just it made it made no sense. So I liked having all my books done as close to the ideal schedule as possible. I liked having about five different issues in various stages of production at the same time. The mm-hmm. one that was about to go out the door, you know, was having the final production work done on it. The 
the issue before that was being colored, the issue for that is being inked, the one for that is being penciled, the one for that was being scripted, et cetera. And that way, if somebody ever did have a problem, you know, they got hurt or injured or, you know, family issues or whatever, I could often, you know, have some wiggle room to keep the creative crew and the, and the continuity of the book going. But if you start out late, there's no wiggle room. And so I had a couple issues of the Hulk that were already passed where the Secret Wars crossover was going to be when Jim finally got around to saying you got to do a Secret Wars crossover. So we had to kind of carve out a Secret Wars crossover out of a book that was already been done. And we did that. And Mignola was penciling the Hulk for me at the time. Mm-hmm. And of course, Shooter had to approve those. And I got the Xeroxes back from Shooter of, of Mike's stuff that had these incredibly harsh, insulting notes all over. He hated Mignola's work. And I told my assistant, all right, we're going to have to make some changes here. Do not send Mike copies of the (laughs) shooter's notes on them. Send him the blank ones, and then I'll send my notes on what to change. Mm -hmm. And the assistant accidentally put the wrong ones in. And whenever I run into Mike now, we still often converse about his reaction when he opened those pages up and saw shooter's comments. It was not pleasant. Oh, gosh. um, It was just like, you know, the dark side, he got won over by the dark side. There you go, the dark side and, seduced his soul. often when someone goes over to that side, they're convinced that they are the only ones that knows what they're doing. They're the only ones right, and the rest of the world go to hell. And that's sort mm-hmm. of the attitude that was coming out of that office. I gotcha. Um, like, and that's basically what the Korvac saga was all about. Maybe. I don't think I've read any of that or recall it anyway. 1987, then when New World Cinema buys Marvel from the Cadence people and Jim Galton is still working there and that transition occurred, Jim Shooter was let go throughout this transition and Tom DeFalco becomes a new editor-in-chief. As far as the creative people feeling at this point burnt out with Shooter's role as editor, are you aware of any other reasons of why he was let go at that time? Oh, boy, oh, boy. There's all kinds of stuff that was happening around there. It's hard for me to remember exactly yeah, what was going on. But, you know, there had been... I'm sure there had been people, you know, major creative forces that had had problems with Shooter that had decided, well, if I'm going to be screwed out of Marvel anyway, I'm going to go talk to the publisher. And right. that was Mike Hobson. That's a name a lot of people don't in the comics fandom aren't aware of, but Mike Hobson was very important in Marvel's success during the 80s. And I think that Jim Galton was aware of this too. Both of those, by the way, are... Galton and Hobson are both amongst my favorite executives that I worked for at any given time. And when they got pretty much chased out of Marvel and replaced by Ron Perlman's people, it was like night and day. But this will give you an example of Jim Galton, his managerial style. At one point when DeFalco was editor-in-chief, Galton wanted to ask Tom some stuff. And you know, most presidents of the company would stay on the 11th floor and call for the editor-in-chief on the 10th floor to come up and see them. But Galton went for a walk downstairs and stuck his head into Tom's office and saw that Tom was sitting there with his back to the door, his feet up on the desk, thinking about something. So Galton turns around and walks back to his office. But Tom's secretary had seen him. Later on, Galton comes back down later in that day and looks in and sees that Tom's busy with some bureaucratic paperwork. And he goes in and talks to him and asks him whatever it was he wanted to ask him about. And Tom says to Galton, you know, my assistant told me you'd come down here before. Why didn't you ask me whatever you wanted to ask me then? And Galton says, I pay you to think strategically about the future. I came down here and saw you doing that, so I didn't want to interrupt you. I mean, that's mm. the kind of, wow, that's that's kind great. of person that we had running the company back then. So you like them. You like Jim. Oh, Martin. yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And then Hobson was in a similar mold. Hobson had come from a publishing background, and he saw more closely, I think, than even Galton, because he was a bit closer to a lot of the creative people, you know, what was happening with Shooter. There was this thing that happened about a month or so before Shooter was let go that ended up being kind of called the Palace Revolt or, you know, Storming the Bastille, where a bunch of us went in to really kind of have it out with Shooter in Mm -hmm. his office. And in the middle of that, someone decided that Hobson should witness this. So he came down, they brought him down, and he saw what was going on in Shooter's office when we were... uh, you know, going back and forth about how he was handling the company and the personnel. 
And I think that made an impression on him, too, that he basically lost the confidence of uh, the rank and file of all the editorial staff or most of I it. see. And there were, you know, Shooter kept trying to do various things. And that was very annoying to the powers that be. And they finally, you know, they were reluctant to get rid of him because they'd had a lot of success with him at the helm for quite some time. And mm-hmm. for all the grief that he caused with the Secret Wars, it had been, a, you know, a huge financial success. And got a lot of media coverage and everything else. So I think they were trying to be as patient as they could with all the other aspects. But at some point, it just, it wasn't worth it. I got you. How do you like working with Tom DeFalco as editor-in-chief? Tom's the best boss I ever had. He's one of those people that I, as a management style that I like to have, which was that if there was a disagreement about something, I could go into Tom and I could lay out my argument as logically and as passionately as I could. And I'd have a honest a chance as possible at convincing of my point of view. And if I did, that was great. But if Tom decided he needed to go in another direction, I knew it wasn't out of selfishness or maliciousness or anything like that. It's it's what he honestly felt needed to be done. Mm -hmm. And he knew that even though I didn't feel that way, that I would execute it to the best of my ability. I would not half-ass it or, you know, try and ignore it or anything like that. I would try and execute to the best of my ability. Mm -hmm. And that to me is how professionals work. And so, and that's the way pretty much the whole staff, not everybody, pretty much the whole staff was like that. Yeah, one person we haven't really talked much about in the midst of all this who was supremely important was Mark Grunewald. Yeah, Mark Grunewald, exactly. So Mark, to me, was like sort of the personification of the heart and soul of Marvel's creative mood and personality. I mean, he started there in the late 70s, but until his death. And he breathed and loved comics, strictly Marvel comics, but comics of all kinds. Yeah. And he was one of those people that he could not wait till Monday morning to, to go in and make more comics. And he was also you know, the one that pretty much, you know, organized all the office parties for Halloween and Christmas and so on. Or if there were, you know, birthday events in the office, things like that. He'd have all these kind of contests and, you know, things going on. He created the Marvel Olympics for the conventions where he'd have the Marvel editorial and creative staff that were at the conventions engage in contests with the fans so the fans could win, you know, Marvel prizes, whether they were comics or collections or posters or whatever. And a lot of us in the comics business are pretty much introverts by nature. Mm -hmm. And in a weird way, Mark was too, but he'd forced himself to be an extrovert by force of will. (laughs) And he was so enthusiastic about doing these contests with the fans at the conventions that the rest of us wouldn't want to let him down. And so he could corral us to do things we would never do on our own. You know, even when DeFalco was vice president and editor-in-chief of Marvel, he'd get Tom DeFalco on the stage in these contests to bust balloons with your butts with the fans, see how many could bust these these (laughs) balloons, you know, within a certain amount of time. This is the friggin' VP and editor-in-chief of Marvel, busting balloons on the stage with the fans. And And Grunewald can make it happen. Yeah, yeah, oh, and great. you know that I remember that old uh, Fametti book where we're all in the pyramid, a human pyramid. That's all Mark's stuff. That's all his idea. You should have been at his wedding. Oh my God! Everybody got a whoopee cushion. So like when the toast comes around, everybody's on the <laughs> toast. Everybody's got to sit on the whoopee cushions, and and they were all customized. Each one was customized by Mark, and just you know everything was like a celebration and and a fun thing, a fun event to do with him. Yes. So sad that when he passed away, it really was an end of an era in a lot of ways because that was right when the worst of the worst was starting to happen with the, the bankruptcy. Ron, yeah, the Ron Perlman stuff. And they basically turned someone who couldn't wait to get in on Monday morning to go to work making Marvel comics to someone who on Friday couldn't wait to get the hell out of Dodge and drive upstate to his weekend house so he can get the hell away out of everything. And to me, it's no accident that his heart attack happened early on a Monday morning, right before he was going to have to get up and drive back in and deal with all oh, the man. in the office. Oh, boy. So did he, and I guess one more question about Grunewald before we go on to your Punisher War Journal in 88, is did he express about working with Shooter and Tom DeFalco and working with those editor-in-chiefs? Did he uh, enjoy working with them? Well, he and Tom got along great. They were like peas in a pod. And they also were constantly playing practical jokes on each other that neither one would ever admit to. Like one would do one to the other and then the other one would have to get them back. And they never spoke about it. It was hilarious. Hmm. 
But Shooter, he had lots of problems with Shooter. In fact, that meeting where we stormed the Bastille, basically when we went into Shooter's office, he was in the midst of a meeting with Ralph Macchio and Grunewald and browbeating them about something and they weren't happy. And then they're caught in the middle between this crowd of rebellious editors and Shooter. And you could see as the meeting went on and on that they're sinking lower and lower in the chairs, (laughs) trying to get out of the line of fire. But, you know, I think like everybody else, he saw all the good things about Shooter and all the bad things. Well, he was a pretty fair and even killed person. So tell us about overseeing the development of the Punisher. Basically, you're credited as turning the Punisher from a side character to someone that could star in his own series. You did the layouts and the writing for the first Punisher War Journal issues in 1988 with Jim Lee doing the finish art. Tell us about that as a mission and what exactly happened there. Initially, I can't remember if the first Punisher project I was started editing was a five-issue miniseries by Grant and Zeck, or there was a very long project, which was the first Punisher graphic novel called Assassin's Guild that Joe Duffy wrote and Jorge Zavino did the art on. I know they were in production simultaneously, but I can't remember which was the first one I started working on. But in any case, I remember Grant and Zeck proposed the miniseries to me. And I, at that point, I hadn't really seen anything from Grant's work that particularly impressed me, but I really liked his take on the the Punisher for the miniseries. And I'd always loved Zek's work. So that's another project that I championed in the approval process. And a lot of the other editors thought I was nuts because, you know, this guy had no superpowers. He was, you know, as much a villain as a hero and, you know, only been a second string guest star and he used real world weaponry and you know, how on earth is anybody going to buy this thing? But I like their take on it. And I also saw at the time in other popular media that films like the Clint Eastwood Dirty Harry films and the Charles Bronson Death Wish film, things like that were, you know, seeming to gaining in popularity. Mm-hmm. So I thought there might be something in the air. So I took a chance on that and it turned out to be a big hit. One of the things I don't think people, another Archie Goodman related thing, I don't think people give Archie enough credit for is the sort of incarnation of the the Punisher that became popular. You know, in the early stages when he was like in Spider-Man and so on like that, he was, you know, much different character, not anywhere near as, you know, serious or realistic, so to speak, as the version that became popular. And a lot of people forget that Archie Goodman wrote two stories that appeared in different black and white magazines featuring the character. I think that kind of reestablished the character with a new kind of frame of reference and seriousness. And that is what I believe is what gave Frank Miller his take on the character. And I believe that that's guest starred in Daredevil. And I believe that is what inspired Grant and Joe Duffy. Joe Duffy was Archie's assistant at the time. And that's also what inspired me when I started writing my stuff. So I think a lot of it goes back to Archie Goodwin's take on the character, which a lot of people have forgotten, unfortunately. I remember Um, those magazine covers where the Punisher was featured, and it was so different from the Ross Andrew Spider-Man version. Yeah. If if I remember right, I think one of them was a Gray Morrow painting. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Boy, how in the hell do I remember that? Jeez. Did you choose Jim Lee to do the art on that? How did that work? Well, on the ongoing, when the miniseries was over and it proved to be a hit, and I decided to do an ongoing series, had Mike Barron do the writing, and Klaus Janssen came on board to do all of the art, including the coloring. He did penciling and coloring. And Klaus, a lot of people don't give him credit for his coloring, but he knew how to color, and he knew how to color for that god-awful paper we had at the time. And so he had a really distinctive look to that. But that kept going, and I kept coming up with these ideas for Punisher stories, but there was no place to put them because... Mike didn't need me. Baron didn't need me to generate ideas for him. He had a ton of his own. And the, the book just took off. So I'm thinking, I'm wondering if this character can you know, support another title. And I thought, well, if we did it, the Punisher War Journal, where in that book, we went more into the internal workings of the character, a bit more in his thoughts and his war journal entries. Because Mike's take on the character was pretty much external. You hardly ever got into his interior thoughts. Like even when Microchip's son died, he didn't go into his thoughts. It was just the external actions there. So I proposed that, and editorial and the sales department thought that was a great idea. But since I was on staff at Marvel, I didn't have time to both write and 
do layouts for it unless it went on a six-week schedule. So that's why it started out on a six-week schedule. And I was looking for someone to do the finished art over it and uh, thought about it, a couple of people, but had not even considered Jim Lee, who at that time was drawing Alpha Flight for me, which was his first series. And I was talking to Jim on the phone one day when we were talking about Alpha Flight, and then we were just shooting the breeze after that. And I told him how I was looking for somebody for this thing, and he volunteered. And I thought, well, I'm no idiot. <laughs> But it was kind of like, you know, uh, robbing from myself because he was doing, he was like growing in leaps and bounds on Alpha Flight. But so I ended up finding someone else for Alpha Flight and Jim uh, ended up doing the finished artwork over my layouts on Word Journal. I ended up, I think, doing, laying out five of the first seven issues. But after that, it got, it was just so popular that the sales department was screaming for it to go monthly. And Jim, obviously, Jim didn't need anybody doing layouts for him. So I just bit the bullet and said, okay, I'll just stick to the writing. And that's where it went from there. The character got so popular, everybody wanted to guest star him. And that's when things kind of got nuts. Kind of chaotic as far as the character. Yeah, because in 1988, I was 10. So there were three things. My first comic experiences were Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends Thor. And then uh, uh, it was that's a also good experience. <laughs> that was a good experience for me. And then yeah. also the trade paperback of the Dark Knight Returns that had come out, and then also the trade paperback reprint, and then then Punisher War Journal from the first issue, or yeah, from the first issue all the way through the Wolverine Punisher crossovers. So that was like kind of like my entry into comics. So then. Now, just kind of moving along to the next year, 1989, and the Perlman Revlon people take over Marvel from New World Cinema, and you became executive editor of the Epic Imprint and also one-third of the Marvel title. So what does an executive editor do? Well, what happens when after Tom was editor-in-chief, he made Mark Grunewald his executive editor, and then as the line and everything kept growing, there was a lot of books for just those two people to look after. And when Archie Goodwin decided to leave Marvel and go back to DC, there was a great danger that the executives were going to just fold up the Epic line because a lot of them up there had this attitude, well, we don't even own this stuff and it doesn't sell as well as the other, you know, the Marvel owned stuff anyway. Why are we even publishing this stuff? And a lot of us felt it was very important for Marvel to create our own stuff and to be more diverse than things that were just in the Marvel universe. So Tom decided that someone had to try and fill Archie's shoes, and it was a thankless task because nobody can fill Archie's shoes. It's like said, it's trying to fill the shoes of the most universally respected and liked person in the business. But I did not want to see Epic shut down. So when Tom asked me to come in and oversee that, I, I agreed to it. And then eventually they added Bob Budiansky as another executive editor, and we ended up just divvying up everything Marvel was publishing into thirds. And so I had a good chunk of the Marvel line as well as the Epic stuff. And they each also had a third of the Marvel line. And basically what each executive editor does is they oversee different groups of editors that each editor in theory had about five monthly books and then a handful of special projects and many series and graphic novels and so on. And our job was to make sure that the work was being done on time and being done well and mm-hmm. if there were issues to deal with them or if there were personnel issues to deal with those with the editorial staff or occasionally with their freelancers, if there were issues that couldn't be resolved amongst the editor and the freelancer. Right, uh, oh, I see. And then so it kind of removed us a bit from the hands-on editing, which was a drag and made us a bit more you know, executive level type activity and so on, which I like wearing a lot of hats. So I don't mind doing that stuff. I just didn't like the fact that the ratio of the creative work went way down based on that, but it was important work. So we would also be involved with the training of the newer editors. Uh, After Tom was made editor-in-chief, he and Mark Grunewald devised a curriculum for the Marvel Assistant Editors Training Program. So for at least an hour or once a week, usually Mark would run the training sessions for the assistant editors, and Tom would occasionally do some stuff, and then I would come in and do things, particularly when it came to visual storytelling. But it was mostly Mark and Tom doing that. And the the concept there was that each assistant editor was assigned to a specific editor, and that was basically who they learned from. And Mm -hmm. since all editors have their strengths and weaknesses, 
the assistant editors, therefore, are not getting a well-rounded education. You might have someone who's a great story person but doesn't draw or know how to draw well, doesn't know a lot about drawing or doesn't know visual storytelling well. Or they might be great on the creative stuff, but the administrative stuff is a nightmare in their office. So they devised this you know, comprehensive training system. So after you'd gone through the system in a year, this, this training program, you had a much more well-rounded education on what would make an ideal editor in theory than, you know, if you just were mentored by one single person. That was a great thing because we kept having to expand the staff. Even with that, the staff got expanded. People got promoted before they were ready. And, and occasionally a few of them did not do well, but most of them did as well as they did, I think, in large part to that training program that Mark and Tom came up with. Oh, that's cool. So then in 94 through 96, going toward the Marvel bankruptcy and you leaving Marvel, you became editor-in-chief of Epic in 1994, and then Marvel goes bankrupt in 1996, and then you leave. Give us those circumstances and the circumstances of the bankruptcy and the Perlman guys, and then why you left. Well, at some point, I think it was in 94 that they pretty much forced out Tom DeFalco as being editor-in-chief. And there was a guy that the Perlman people had brought in who was a huge comics fan, Terry Stewart, that was president of Marvel, and he's supposed to run Marvel. And, you know, whereas people like DeFalco and Hobson were amongst my favorite people to work for, that my people I reported directly to, I, I cannot say that at all about Terry Stewart. He was a, a big fan of comics, so I'll give him that. Loved Marvel, but he was a horrible executive. Uh-huh. And so he came up with this idea that each major group of Marvel titles would have its own editor-in-chief. So the five editor-in-chiefs were Grunwald, Budiansky, Bob Harris, Bobby Chase, and myself. And I had the most eclectic line. I had everything from what was left of Epic at the time because the Perlman people did not want to have anything to do with Epic. And the alternate universe type stuff like what was left of What If and the alternative things like Ruins and the Last Avengers story. And then all the licensed stuff, everything from you know Barbie to Conan and the Clive Barker stuff. And the occasional odds and ends here and there. But the idea in theory was that this is like their kind of corporate thinking was that each editor-in-chief would be like their own miniature publishing house. They'd have their own dedicated marketing plan and budget and their their own editorial budget and so on. And, you know, it'd be like this internal competition kind of thing that would make keep things feisty and moving and typical corporate kind of buzzword thinking, which did not work at Marvel. It basically negated one of the best things about Marvel, whereas we were all in it together. We all pulled for each other. We all tried to help each other out instead of competing for limited resources. And one of the things that, even though we were in theory editors-in-chief, there were a lot of things that normally an editor-in-chief would have power over that we couldn't because there were five of us. And some things we might do would contradict the others or you know negatively affect the others. So Terry Stewart was going to be the ultimate be-all and end-all on anything that we, the five of us couldn't decide amongst ourselves. And mm. so he, he held weekly meetings for a while where we'd go in there and we'd hit him with all the things that he needed to make decisions on. And usually he'd just say, okay, let me think about that and I'll let you know next week. And then we'd meet him again the following week and have a whole bunch of new problems and he'd never resolve the previous ones. So after a number of weeks of this, some of the other editors-in-chief just they were wiser than I am, and they just gave up trying to get resolution on some of these things. But me and one of the other editor-in-chiefs kept a list of all the stuff that it was supposed to have been done and hadn't been done. And every week, we'd run through the list of things that should have been had decisions made, plus all the new stuff. And he started getting embarrassed by it. And his solution was to stop having the meetings. And I'm sure I didn't help my future there at all <laughs> by bringing up the fact that he was totally ineffective and <laughs> helping to get, get anything done. But, you know, I felt that these decisions had to be made. There were people counting on me to get these decisions out of them. And I felt horrible that, you know, people that worked for me were being negatively affected by the indecisions at the top of the company. So I'm sure Terry, you know, has his own side of the story and has his own demons he was dealing with up there and all that. But if you're going to be president, be friggin' president, make some decisions. So 
they went back at the beginning of 95. They told us we had to cut staff by some outrageous amount. And I ended up having to lay off some people that I did not want to lay off. Then the year continued to not do well for the most part for Marvel. One of the few hits Marvel had in 95 was Marvel's, which was edited by my former assistant, who was part of my group, Marcus McLaurin. And Marvel's happened because Marcus helped championing it. You know, when it was proposed to him, the writer had, again, sort of like similar case, I think, to Stephen Grant up to that point. He hadn't done a lot that had really garnered a lot of attention, but the proposal was very, very interesting. And he brought along this guy, Alex Ross, who no one had ever heard of before. And Marcus championing this thing and got it approved in a period when the industry was starting to collapse and getting money for any new series was much harder, much less an expensive, fully painted series. And things like the production manufacturing people telling them that those clear acetate covers with the printing on them instead of printing on the the actual cover itself so that people had an you know unobstructed view of the original Alex Ross painting on the cover. They kept telling him that was impossible, that was impossible. And he never gave up and he ended up searching out and finding people who could do that and showing it to the manufacturing people so they couldn't tell him no anymore. <laughs> and so his reward for having one of the few Marvel hits in 1995 was to be part of the huge wave of layoffs at 96, where they told a whole bunch of us, including me, that they were either fired or not renewing their contracts. So that was at the beginning of 96. So, Carl, if we don't get to Alien Legion, they're going to kill us. I mean, we, <laughs> like, yeah, we did two hours, but we did actually get to the thing that most people are probably know you for as much as anything. So can we take sure. a few minutes and talk about the genesis of that, how it came to be, what it means to you? Just, I'm going to let you just talk about that particular book and right. series and concept. All right. Well, that goes way, way back to when I was a fan trying to break into comics by drawing samples and sending them into the companies to be pretty much ignored. So I'd have to create my own scenarios to draw. I didn't want to just redraw something that had been part of a published comic. So at one point, I came up with two different stories. One was about this all-human space combat team, sort of a foreign legion in space, all made of humans. And a different story was about a, a couple different aliens, including one that had the serpentine lower body. And at some point, I accidentally knocked uh, the pages off my bed and they got scrambled on the floor. And as I was starting to sort them out, the light bulb went on over my head. And I said, these guys are in space, this combat crew. Why the hell are they all humans? The ranks should be filled with different you know, alien life forms and they should be led by this guy with the serpentine lower body. And I never really had time to you know do much with that concept until you know 83 when I joined Marvel and I, I didn't really have time to write it or draw it myself so I ended up hiring some people and working with them on it to develop it further and, and launch it and originally believe it or not that was going to be a Marvel Universe title really wow yeah Marvel at that point if you created a new property that was going to be Marvel owned, then you were guaranteed through contract uh, a piece of the back end and so on if it ever got turned into a film or toys or whatever. But then this is one of the issues I had with Shooter. Shooter, you know, approved that and then he reneged on it. He decided he didn't want to do that after we'd already started working on the book. And so I was pretty ticked off. But then Archie Goodwin was just starting Epic Comics at the time. He comes over and he goes, I heard about this situation. How'd you like to bring it over to Epic? So Archie pretty much saved the day with that. And we ended up being the third Epic title after Dreadstar and Coyote. Oh, and, cool. Uh, and I think we were the longest running original Epic property of all time, if you count all the various editions and incarnations and all that. You know, there were a lot more issues of Gru, but Gru had been published at Pacific and somewhere else before they came to Epic. But I think it was the longest running title as far as number of issues and over the years of uh, any of the original Epic properties. But in 96, right before, 95, I guess it was right before the layoffs at Marvel, I wrote a screenplay, my first screenplay with Ray Lynch. And I didn't know anybody in the film business, but I 
occasionally I would get calls from people saying, you know, I have something that might be interesting for me to shop around Hollywood. So eventually in 96, it got optioned for a TV series at MGM that Bob Gale wrote the pilot for. Bob Gale's guy wrote all the Back to the Future films. Sure, he did some Daredevil too, didn't you? Or Batman? Yeah, he, he did, yeah, yeah he, he's he's a huge comics fan. Yeah, yeah, huge comics fan. Very nice guy. Very talented guy. But then MGM decided they were getting out of the TV business, so that went away. And eventually, I hope I remember all these in order. This has a long history in Hollywood. The property was optioned eventually by Dimension Films, and they hired a really good writer to write it. But that writer didn't really know science fiction and the draft that I read was very disappointing. And then the president of Dimension left and the successors usually don't want to deal with their predecessors' projects. So that went away there. And then it got optioned by Mainframe, which was uh, doing 3D animation up in Canada. They're the guys that originally did Reboot. And uh-huh. they were getting more and more sophisticated with their work. And there was a a producer on staff there that just loved Alien Legion. And so they optioned it and hired me to be executive editor. And I went out there and helped them develop it. And then that company's presidents changed hands. <laughs> Presidency changed hands. And the new president there screwed that on. And I can't remember if there are any others, but eventually a friend of mine who's a big comics fan, a writer and producer and, and a director named Boaz Keen, he directed Remember the Titans for Bruckheimer. Ah, that's the connection with Berkheimer then, I guess. Yeah, he's written and directed a whole lot of films. Most of them are more indie-style films. But the way we met is that he's the guy who wrote the first draft of the original Punisher film. And they'd sent that to me as the Punisher editor to get feedback on. And I sent them feedback, and he contacted me directly to go over some of the feedback. And then he got removed from the project, and they had somebody else rewrite it. But... Boaz's original take on the character was much better than the one that ended up on the screen. But we were, you know, we became friends after that. And he'd gone into Bruckheimer's and they had had success with the first couple of Pirates of the Caribbean films, mixing live action with CGI. And they wanted to do the same thing with the science fiction property. He goes, I got the perfect one for you. Sure. So, so they optioned Alien Legion, they optioned my screenplay, and, and they started a whole series of rewrites by half of Hollywood, basically. And this and, would be around 2007? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Initially, they optioned it for two 18-month periods. But then in there, you have to add in, there was a writer's strike in there, too, so that automatically extends the period according to the terms of the contract. So they had it for about three-plus years as an option. And then they hired the guy they thought was going to finally do the rewrite that they were looking for, and that was David Benioff of ah, Game of Thrones sure. fame. It turned out Benioff grew up in, this made me feel old, Benioff grew up in Brooklyn as a huge Alien Legion comics fan. And so between seasons of Game of Thrones, the busiest guy in Hollywood does three rewrites of Alien Legion. After uh, three rewrites, they fired him. And they didn't allow me to read any of his takes on it. Another guy that was a huge Alien Legion fan that had contacted me years before is Tim Miller, who owns Blur Studios and hadn't directed any feature films at the time, but had done a whole lot of very impressive work at his 3D studio there. And so I introduced him to the Bruckheimer people, but they didn't really want to entrust Alien Legion to someone who didn't have any feature credits yet. So right after you know Deadpool comes out, suddenly they're interested in Tim Miller. <laughs> same guy, same talent, just happens to have his first feature film to come out and be a big hit. So they let him read the last Benioff script. And it, according to him, he said it sounded kind of like they were instructing Benioff to turn Alien Legion into a science fiction Game of Thrones. So that didn't make any sense, and he wasn't interested in that. So that's when my contract was finally over with them. And in theory, I got the rights back. But Disney's contracts are pretty notorious for being onerous, and they have some pretty strange language in there that they're using now to help make it very difficult for me to make another deal elsewhere, although I'm continuing to work on that now with some other production partners. So wish us luck. We're going to need it. Boy, that's discouraging, but a familiar story at the same time. Yep, afraid so. 
I'm also trying to get, I wrote a pilot for, in a Bible for a TV series based on my Last of the Dragons graphic novel. And I'm trying to oh, get cool. that out I've been writing screenplays on a variety of things over the years, and I have pretty eclectic taste. So one of them's a baseball comedy. <laughs> one of them is that huge science fiction, I mean, that World War II project I told you about that's based on my family's experiences. I wrote mm-hmm. a couple of screenplays about that one based on my family's experiences and one focused on the rescue effort to save them. Because I hadn't done enough work on spec, I combined them and added more to turn it into a TV miniseries script. And since my name's not Spielberg or Hanks, the odds of that ever getting made are pretty darn low. I wrote something called Yankee Maori, which is the true story of a an American in the 1860s who traveled to England, drank away all his money, and fell for a British recruiting army sergeant pitch about you know warm beds and warm food and joined the British Army and got shipped to New Zealand. And he was a sarcastic authority-hating Yankee, which didn't go over well with his officers. So he was constantly being punished and flogged. And he deserts and joins the Maori in their fight against the British and ends up helping them win an unlikely series of victories over the British in New Zealand in the 1860s. That's all real stuff I researched. That sounds great. I mean, that really sounds like fun. It's great stuff. I'm hoping to turn that into a graphic novel at some point, but finding someone who's interested in backing that is, is a little hard. Did you ever read that or see the Peter Jackson documentary? It's a fake documentary that he did, Forgotten Silver. Forgotten Silver? Yeah. No, what's that? What Jackson does early in his career, he does this faux documentary that's about a lost film that's discovered that reveals that there's a New Zealand director who is probably equal to D.W. Griffith and all that and was the the person that actually invented the close-up and and all of these things. And it's pretty authentic for at least a little bit of it, and then it gets a little more absurd as it goes along. I used to show it to my students and not explain to them that it was fake and it was meant to be be funny, and they would just be taking notes and uh, (laughs) following it. It's it's definitely worth watching, speaking in New Zealand. I'll, I'll check that out. The closest film I've seen to the Yankee Mara when I was telling you about is Jeff, is it Miller? I forget the guy's name, but a New Zealand director. He directed a film, I think it was in the 80s, called Utu, which means revenge. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, you know, that has a lot of similarities to the period and the times I'm talking about. But, I, you know, I keep coming up with ideas and things that I like. And if I could find the time, I'll write them and work on them and see what happens. Just things come out of the blue once in a while, too. Like, I was asked a while back by DC, every once in a while they'll call me up and ask me to do layouts for someone else's work on that graph. Oh, cool. They hire people that they really like the drawing style for, but those people don't always tell the stories very clearly or cleanly, so they'll often hire people like me or John Bogdanov or Brett Blevins or Mike Manley to do the storytelling, the layouts for them. Well, you did literally write the book. Yeah, literally. Yeah. (laughs) We should probably Uh, explain what I mean by that. I took a lot of the information and aspects and exercises and so on that I learned when I was mentoring a lot of talent at Marvel and wrote the book that came out that was part of the DC Comics Guide 2 series. There was, I think, about six of them all told. Mine was the most recent one. Denny O'Neill did the first one on writing, and then Klaus Jensen did one each on penciling and inking. There was one on digital tools by Freddie Williams and a split book on lettering and coloring by uh, Mark Giarella. Todd Klein, yeah, on the lettering side. And then mine was on visual storytelling, but it also pretty much covered all the creative aspects. And recently that just went out of print. I was surprised because I usually before I go to a convention, I'd call up the publisher and order a bunch of copies to take with me to sell because I often give seminars on visual storytelling at the conventions I attend. And I was told that it was out of print. And I called up Watson Guthrie, who was the company that published it. They licensed it from DC Warner Brothers. And I was told that, I guess it was a 20-year deal they originally had. And it was up and Watson Guthrie was up for renewing it. But Warner Brothers pulled it. And that meant that all the copies that Watson Guthrie or Random House, their parent company, had in in-house had to be trashed because it was a licensed book. They didn't 
own it, they couldn't remainder it. Oh, no. So suddenly, you know, I can't get my own book anymore, and I require it where I teach at School of Visual Arts and Academy of Art University and other places, so my students can't even get my book. You can't assign your own book now. Well, I'll tell you off the phone how I'm handling that. But um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so when I went to Amazon, the, the few remaining new copies over there, there's lots of, you know, used copies that you can find relatively reasonable, but... For a while there, they were up to four hundred plus dollars, and I'm going, "Who the hell's paying that for this book?" But it, it's come down quite a bit since then. But there's not that many new copies left since they had to trash them all. I was really hoping they'd go remainder, and I'd go buy a bunch of them cheap and use them that way. Well, we're at our time, but I didn't want to not ask you about your later career in terms of the teaching aspect. Could you talk about how you got started on that and what your experience has been as a teacher? I've always been, obviously, you know, from the time I mentored at Marvel, I've always been interested in working and trying to help people get better at creating comics and all the creative aspects. And I was having lunch, I guess, about nine years ago with Klaus Jansen, who's taught for a long time at School of Visual Arts in New York, and mentioned my interest in teaching. So he put the word into the chair, the head of the the chairman of the division, illustration division, and they ended up having me come on board to help teach senior portfolio class. And eventually I got into, I created a new class where students bring their ideas for their story worlds and their fictional worlds. And we create a Bible around it that fleshes out the world, works out the internal logic, who the characters are, the storylines, do character designs and environment designs and so on. So they have this pitch Bible that they can use to either go to publishers or producers or whatever with. And I'm also teaching a junior thesis class now. I co-teach that one with Joey Cavallari, who uh, worked at both Marvel and DC. And I teach online now as well for Academy of Art University, which is based out in San Francisco, but they have a lot of online classes. And it's a little strange teaching online, but the plus side is I get to teach people all around the world. There's times when I've taught, you know, like a soldier during his downtime who's stationed in Iraq, you know, people in Romania, people in South America, you know, people all over the U.S. that I would never, in Canada, that I'd never get a chance to, to meet or teach or learn from myself. It's definitely strange to be teaching online in some ways, but uh, very gratifying in others. And I teach a little bit here in New York at Manhattanville College occasionally. And I wrote a course recently for Pace University on writing and editing graphic novels. So I like it. I enjoy it a lot. It's a lot of work. I wish teaching paid more. That would be nice. But I noticed uh, I saw the word adjunct in front of some of your stuff. And I thought, well, I know what that means, which means grossly underpaid. (laughs) And the big difference between mentoring at Marvel and teaching is that when I was mentoring at Marvel, I could cherry pick the best, most talented people and work with them. When you're teaching, you have to move everybody forward as much as they can, no matter what level they start at, what their level of dedication or enthusiasm is. It's your job to try and move them forward as much as possible. And that's a much more difficult task particularly when there's so many of them in the the classroom. And that's a real challenge. And I think I have a fair amount of success on it, but I'd always, the the times where it's not as successful as I'd like, that's very disappointing. Have you encountered anybody where you just thought, it doesn't matter what you're going to be, you're going to be a super successful person in the industry? Well, what's interesting now is the vast majority of my students are not at all interested in mainstream comics. They're more indie. And thankfully, I've always had an eclectic, you know, sense of taste and interest. And having started myself out at, you know, at Epic Illustrated Magazine, doing things that weren't super heroic stuff at all. But a, a lot of them are just not interested in mainstream comics. There are a few. One of them, one of my better, actually, continuing ed classes students is helping me now uh, with the latest DC project where they wanted to do... They wanted me to do 175 pages of layouts for a Catwoman graphic novel coming up. And I just didn't have the time to do it. So I talked them into letting one of my top students do that with my supervision. Oh, and, that's uh, great. And, and we're getting close to the finish on that. But uh, there's a lot of people that are really talented that haven't quite 
made it big yet in the indie or the mainstream area yet, but I think we'll be seeing a lot of them come soon. There's just so many talented people and they love creating comics so much. A lot of them do it for, you know, just for the sheer love of doing it, even if they know they can never make a living at it. The irony of the business right now is that it's, you know, never been more diverse in genres or subjects than it ever has been before in North America, but the actual sales of print comics, and even if you factor in the digital ones, it's a you know a fraction of what it used to be in the heyday of the late 80s, early 90s. When I joined Marvel, we would routinely cancel books that sold less than 100,000 copies. If a book sold 25,000 copies now, that people would be running down the hall shouting for joy that this thing sold that much. Right. That's a very different industry today, that's yeah. for sure. But the whole online medium it gives everybody that wants to publish their work, you know, an outlet for it now. It's just hard to figure out how you're going to monetize it. That's the, the huge bugaboo. And some of my favorite comics I've read in the last couple of years have been t- when taking my six-year-old to the children's bookstore. And some of the stuff uh-huh. that Scholastic and, and those publishers yeah. are doing for a second is really top stuff Yeah, and very, very I, different. My favorite graphic novel I've read in like the last five years is a first second graphic novel by the Tamaki cousins this one summer. I think that's a brilliant piece of work. Oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, any time I run into somebody that isn't familiar with the graphic novel form or thinks it's all, you know, Batman, Spider-Man stuff, I actually buy groups of used copies of this one summer that I keep on hand and I just hand them to them and I make converts all the time by handing them that book. That's a great one. The Prince and the Dressmaker. There's uh, some that are just beautiful books. So I have some hope for the industry. I love today's talk. Thanks so much, Carl. You give a lot of insight because you come at it as a professional, as an academic, and then you're really well-spoken where you can actually sum up complex emotional situations in a way that people can understand. I really appreciate your talent and your ability to chat with us today. Yeah, uh, nicely said. I feel the same. It was great. Carl. Really fun. I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. I did too. Oh, good. So this is another episode of the Comic Book Historians podcast. I'm Alex Jan with my co-host, Jim Thompson. Carl Potts, thanks for joining us today and stay tuned for our next episode in a couple of weeks. Cheers. <laughs>